Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Welcome. It's Yay. Mandy. <laughs> it's and Katie. Katie. <laughs> Hi, welcome to our podcast, our Dirty Laundry, where we talk about white women's history of not being great. And yeah, we enjoy ourselves, even though it's usually painful and awful stuff that we're learning. We are happy to be learning it. We think it's important. We are white women ourselves um, who are, you know, straight upper middle class, currently able-bodied, cis, settler-descended white ladies, just... <laughs> All the things. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we we know that, like, 99% of the history that we've been learning in this podcast, we never learned in school, no one ever taught us, and we are grown-ass women who think it's our responsibility to learn these histories. So here we are, and here you are listening to us, whoever you are. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks for coming, joining yeah. us on our depressing pressing for yep um don't forget to subscribe if you're not subscribed or to like us and leave a review that helps other people find us yes. and don't feel like you have to start at the beginning you can jump right in yeah that's totally fine but we are we should tell people about the book we're reading right mm-hmm. now do you have because this is kind of the middle so if you're starting <laughs> with this episode you might want to at least listen to the way jennifer nelson Um, it's part of, so we're in the eugenics section and we, I'm previous to this because yeah, you might listen. Yes, we are reading the book, Women of Color and the Reproductive Rights Movement, but us kind of led ourselves towards this book, I think, as we were discussing Mm -hmm. eugenics and then it morphed into all of the different ways that it affected women of color. Um, Mm -hmm. and their reproduction and then how that differed Mm -hmm. from the concerns that white women had. And this book is kind of a perfect culmination of discussing that whole topic. So, yeah, yeah. we keep stumbling upon these really fantastic resources for sure. And I had, we're, we're not, you know, per usual, we're not making our way very quickly through this book. I think we just get really interested in the details. And I tease Mandy that she's a petty detective who will hunt down <laughs> the details of anybody who just trips or triggers. So mm-hmm. it, sometimes it takes us a while to get through things, but I think that's for the best. And today is no different. I was telling Mandy before we started that we're going to just tell you a little bit about this first chapter in the book, but basically just go down all sorts of different rabbit holes. And I even titled my Google Doc where I was keeping notes for this rabbit holes. And then I don't know why, but it just sounded so dirty to me today. <laughs> why? I remember I talking like about sex and reproduction. And yeah, I guess. Yeah. Anything just, with holes. Yeah, I was like uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So... I don't know what rabbit holes could mean in a dirty way, but I don't know. I'm so, sure there's something. Yes. Don't Google it. It's probably disgusting. Yeah, it probably already <laughs> is. I'm something. sure it's a thing. There's nothing that hasn't been made a thing already by some mm. pervert, but <laughs> or not if you're into that. <laughs> like me. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> rabbit hole away. Um, yes. But I let's maybe just do like a little recap. Chapter one is really focusing on 
radical feminists, and primarily in New York. Mm -hmm. And the author of this book, Jennifer Nelson, uh, is a professor and a historian, a scholar of this subject. And she talks about, she explains why she's focused on that group. Not that they're the only women doing anything, but that they organized a lot of really prominent actions and really Mm -hmm. like public, like they were a really influential group and wanting to just um, explain their position. And one thing I thought that was really interesting is she gets into the chapter, the distinction between the more radical feminists and like more moderate feminists. So the radical feminists being like the red stockings, which is a group we're going to talk about more today um, versus like now the national organization of women Mm -hmm. who maybe took more like reformist moderate positions um, and the ways in which they differed in their approaches and, and especially when it came to fighting for reproductive rights, the ways that both groups ended up really centering and focusing on abortion rights yep. in the same ways that the suffragists from our very first season, again, if you want to go back and listen, if you haven't listened, <laughs> it's a really great season. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, what we learned about suffrage was that there were these same kind of rifts between radical feminists basically in the 19th century and more moderates who were trying to like make compromises and work within systems and ended up selling out a lot of people in order to do that, but had a lot of power in the movement and then kind of pushed out the more radical women who were asking for more like intersectional cross issue solidarity kinds of things. And so I, I was struck by the similarity there, Mm -hmm. but ultimately even the more radical women that we're going to learn about today that even though they were articulating a need to not do that, I, my takeaway from the chapter was that it still kind of ended up that way. Mm-hmm. Is that what you got to? Like, yeah. even though they could say they needed to be more intersectional, that abortion ended up becoming their focus and that it took what we'll talk about next episode, like really concerted, organized women of color pushing these more radical white middle class feminists to to make space in their agenda for a broader understanding of reproductive rights that included not just the right to not have children, but the right to have children and the right to make whatever decision you want to make that is not constrained by like poverty. Right. Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Focusing on those issues. Yeah. Yeah. Just, um, it was, their focus seemed to be very, very narrow. And I think that, Mm-hmm. The point of the chapter is, I mean, that worked for what they were doing at that moment, but it did exclude a, a bigger picture of reproductive rights for sure. So, yeah. The, what, the rabbit holes that I'm going to show you today, <laughs> wink, nudge, nudge. Um, uh, I'm going to talk about a lot of individual women and a lot of them honestly reminded me of Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who we learned about like way back mm-hmm. in our very first set of episodes, who was so like she started to pull on the strings of oppression and realize that all these things are connected. And she started to really come to question, um, you know, settler colonialism and Christianity and capitalism and sex. Like she just started to make all these connections. And Mm -hmm. then it, it was like, her views were too radical. She questioned too much and then got really kind of sidelined or, or pushed out. And I kept thinking about that being this, story as well, that a lot of the women that I went down, you know, following and trying to learn more about, I, I'd never heard of these women. I can, I felt like, oh, I could name some like feminist ladies from the sixties, yeah. but 
definitely it was like, oh, I, I even, even the narrative about feminists has been sanitized mm-hmm. for what we've learned. Mm-hmm. What, what was new to you in this chapter? I mean, all of those names are definitely new to me. Never heard of any of them, which is really interesting because a lot of, especially a lot of like the attorneys that represented the women in these cases, I was surprised. Um, that I hadn't heard more about them or like mm-hmm. what they've done since. So I thought that that was like an interesting question. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then just what happened after all of this, because it seems like it was a very organized and active group at that time. But then where did it all go? Like those were. Well, it's funny. Yeah. It's funny you say that because one of the women that I'm going to tell you about um, Robin Morgan Um, She says in an interview where she's thinking back to this one demonstration that they organized, she said, if anybody had asked me 50 years ago, where do you think this will all be in 50 years? I never would have imagined we'd still be fighting some of the same fights. I thought we'd either be dead in our 30s because Nixon or someone would have killed us as revolutionaries. (laughs) If we weren't dead, we would have won. Mm -hmm. A rather youthful, simplistic prediction. Yeah. Yeah. Which is unfortunately what we have learned about history all along. Like, oh, we think we're going somewhere. And then 50, 100 years later, we're like, oh, shit, we're still in the same place. Um, Well, so tell me what you've learned about the Red Stockings. Because the chapter obviously gave us a little bit, but it sounds like you dived in. Yeah, I, I wanted to look up a little bit more about where the group started and what the name meant, because it never really got into that. Um, So I think in general, it says this in the book, but also in what I read, they started in January of 1969. They, it occurred because there was a breakup of the group that was the New York radical women. Um, And so some of those women came together and they formed this group called the Red Stockings. And the name actually comes from, another name, which was the blue stockings. So then I had to go and look up what the blue stockings were. And the blue stocking term started very, very early, like in the 17, 1800s. So blue stocking was a term for an educated intellectual woman. And they, who was a member of the blue stocking society, which was an 18th century group, um, led by, Elizabeth Montague, which is a name that I do feel like I know. Um, But Hmm. she was, um, I think she was born in like 1718. So this is a really long, 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 long time ago. Um, And then the term just came to apply to any woman who showed an interest in literary or intellectual matters. So Hmm. initially, it didn't really have a strong connotation either way. It was just more of a descriptive kind of term, but then kind of like nerd, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Like those like, women. Is that the, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of like a synonym, like, Oh, you're bookish. Yeah. You know, like what would be the word today we would use? Yeah. Okay. But they're, talking. they're okay. also, um, the term had a, had originally referred to people of both sexes who were just interested huh. in any literary or intellectual matters, but then nerds. Yeah. Nerds. 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 You were you a blue stocking. <laughs> um, but then um, it became a derogatory term. Like people used it as a taunting way, like nerd. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, yep. So then, yeah. So then it was negative. 
Um, but I guess the, this group of women who then formed the red stockings were taking that back over and changed it from blue to red because of its association with like the far left revolutionary. I'm actually so interested in this because like right now the red, like red scare, of course, like the fear of communists Mm -hmm. or like, you know, lefties being pink or red. I, I knew that history, but right now red is just the color of the right yeah like red states blue states Mm -hmm. so i am kind of curious another rabbit hole to go down like when did that color shift change but they were red meaning like hardcore lefty Mm -hmm. red Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. yeah anyway so lefty nerds lefty nerds lefty nerds Mm -hmm. so willie i mean i'll let you talk more about like the individual women that Mm -hmm. kind of formed this group but then i also went to look and see if this group is still active. Um, oh, yeah. And they do have a Facebook page and they have a web page, but it seems like it's more of a historical kind of um, accounting of it. It's redstockings.org and it just has more of the history of the group in it. They do on their Facebook group page sometimes promote um, certain activities or protests or, you know, issues that are currently Uh coming up as feminist one of them which i wanted to bring up as being probably problematic um and this is you know where you always have to be careful about when you're researching history kind of bringing up all of the relevant facts um Mm. because one of the things about them being more radical feminist involves some exclusion of um, the LGBTQ um, mm-hmm. culture. So historically, they have been uh, characterized as homophobic because mm-hmm. they, in early writings, some of their members wrote about um, homosexual men being the pinnacle of misogyny and a- anti-woman mm-hmm. because... Mm-hmm. They don't even like women as like partners. And so a total rejection of women so that they were fairly anti-gay men at that point. And then more recently, they have been criticized for being very transphobic. Um, There's the term TERF that I had to look up like a few months back when I first heard it, but it's trans exclusionary radical feminists. And I think... They, I mean, that term is generally thought of as negative, but I think that they, from what I can see on their Facebook page, would openly say that is how they feel. Like they, this is like J.K. Rowling's take. Yeah, like I think that's where I first heard the term "turf" was in her super transphobic, like very, very clear refusal to acknowledge trans women as women. And I mean, that's. I think it's one thing to acknowledge that like a trans woman's experiences growing up or transitioning or are, are things that I can't understand. Like they're just different experiences of womanness. But to me, I think of it in the same way as like other intersections. Like I wouldn't know what it's like to grow up as a woman in abject poverty, or I wouldn't know what it's like to grow up as a black woman, but that doesn't mean they are women. Right. You know, right. Anything where you are adopting exclusionary as part of your definition is probably problematic. <laughs> 
panic. It's like not like, great. Yeah. And what's, what's to be gained from it? I think like, I don't know about the women I'm going to talk about today, what some of them have passed away. So I don't know yeah. that they would know. Like we have, we know mm-hmm. what they say. Um, but the, like what, what is to be gained by saying like, no, you can't be here. Like, I, I don't, it doesn't like the, when I'm thinking about trans women who I know or have worked with, like, great, mm-hmm. like let's work together and we have common interests and we have uncommon interests and that's, that's okay. And like the harm that's done, I don't want that to happen. And it, mm-hmm. it just, I don't understand it from what i can tell it just seems very transphobic yep. like a, a rejection that these are women mm-hmm. and that just seems ridiculous yeah. to me i don't know yeah so no yeah i'm glad you pointed that out yeah so anyway turfs, turfs yes not not our jam um, no not our jam and apparently now a at least some sort of faction of the red stockings as they currently Hmm. exist, which is disappointing. And if that's incorrect, if anyone knows any more about this group or this reaches anybody and you want to tell us otherwise, please do. Or someone (laughs) wants to explain to us why they think that the exclusionary part of that is not problematic. Like to hear your argument. Cause like Katie said, I don't, I don't see where that could be positive. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so, so the women, what rabbit holes do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Um, So I'll start with actually an event because I think they are all connected to this event that was mentioned in chapter one that I thought was really interesting. So what the Red Stockings were doing at this time, at least according to Jennifer Nelson, was um, really focusing on this issue of abortion through the groups that they had set up called consciousness raising groups where women were meeting in their, you know, living rooms or in coffee shops and they were having conversations about their experiences as women. And out of it were emerging these themes of things that really concerned them. And so one of the issues that kept coming up had to do with abortion. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I think legally and legislatively there were things happening at the same time that were concerning to people who wanted access to abortion um, and in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about the very inequitable access to safe and low cost or free abortions, as well as the very disproportionate harm done by botched abortions or the sterilizations that were happening to women who sought abortions and that that disproportionately affected women of color. And so there, there's just a lot going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So one of the other issues that came up in these conscious consciousness raising groups actually doesn't necessarily have to do with abortion, but it's an example of some of the actions that this group was taking. And it identified women that I wanted to know more about because I hadn't ever learned about them. And I was curious Mm -hmm. to learn more about them. So it's this protest in 1968 of the Miss America beauty pageant. Mm. Okay. Do you, like, I don't know anything familiar about with this, this pageant. No. Well, the pageant. Well, maybe yes. I didn't know about the protest. <laughs> What's your? Have you watched the pageant? What's your your relationship? I mean, I wouldn't. Ex- 
I would have no idea that it still existed if it wasn't for the like horrible reality of Donald Trump being part of our lives still. <laughs> um, and his involvement with what I don't know, Miss America, isn't he involved in that? I don't know. I think he, yeah, yeah. I think he like owns yeah. it now, maybe. Yeah. Or something. yeah. I know that I saw it on TV, like as a kid, like it was playing or, you know, on the television because there were like three options for what to watch at night when we were kids because <laughs> we're old. Right. Um, and so yes. I do mm -hmm. remember occasionally like mm -hmm. that being one of the things that we just watched was the Miss America pageant. But since childhood, like very young childhood, yeah, zero, zero familiarity with it whatsoever don't know haven't yeah, watched it the same like i'm sure we watched it because it was what was on right and now i'm like kind of horrified because i'm like oh my god i would never have kids watch that but <laughs> i know i'm not like a pageant person mm -hmm. and i know there's arguments like why pageants are empowering to women whatever i like okay. i think ultimately maybe that i'm open to those arguments but i ultimately come down on the side that those are fairly bullshitty mm -hmm. but it's but i think it is more complicated than just like yay or nay and what's really interesting is the women i'm going to talk about um did a lot of like public reflecting on their protests and actually came away like kind of critical of themselves like uh we we don't we shouldn't have done it this way or we regret this because they're really one of the points that they want to make is that they feel like the way they did it kind of pitted women against women and that that's not what they wanted to do that they shouldn't be focused on like these women like to be pretty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fuck them. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's like trying to unite in sisterhood against systems of patriarchy and racism and classism, et cetera. Yes. So I, do, I want like, even though pageants aren't my thing, you know, like maybe they are for somebody else. Um, I, <laughs> I will say, um, I mean, I feel comfortable coming out very strongly that like child pageants, I think, are super creepy yeah. and weird. And I will go on record publicly saying that I think that that's very yeah, strange. Yeah, yeah. And like, I'm not cool with that, but, um, I, it reminded me reading through, so one of the women talks about when they were young, that she, she also just like you, like we just watched the pageant and they brought it up and they were talking about it. Um, and that, you know, even enjoyed it or like thought, like she said, she cried when the girl was crowned, mm -hmm, you know, and she mm -hmm. was like emotionally invested. And I was like, Oh, Katie, <laughs> you've cried at the bachelor and the bachelorette yeah. before. Like I, you know, I think that's almost the modern day equivalent mm -hmm. of it. And interestingly, like the hot debates and scandals right now in bachelor nation over racism and like homophobia, like there's a lot, I think that's, a lot of pressure being put from different corners on that franchise mm -hmm. to, to be more thoughtful about things it, that I totally understand where they're coming from. But it is, it is definitely something that like I have watched knowing full well, it's like heinous in terms of the, like the tropes it's reproducing, yeah. but you know, I definitely have, I've definitely watched it. So, <laughs> I mean, I like, I should full disclosure, any of my friends listening are like Katie, you did more than watch it. I, that makes it sound like I applied. I didn't ever apply. I would never be accepted. But the, um, I, I don't, I'm not social media savvy enough for one. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, we had for a while 
girlfriends in grad school who would get together and watch it every week. And we had like a league where we would, and I was the commissioner of said league, mm. where we would guess like things that were going to happen in the episode and people would get points. And then there was a trophy at the end of this. Like we were very wow. invested. Yeah, yeah. So that's a little more near casual viewing. It. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. I will admit to that. So um, it's 1968. So picture like a lot is happening in 1968. There's a lot going down in terms of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. Um, Like Nixon's about to get elected. Like there's just a lot happening um, politically and, and just in the world and in popular culture. And so this, the, the red stockings and these different like groups of radical women. So this, this group was the New York radical women, which I think your point was they kind of broke off mm-hmm. and became the red, the red stockings. stockings yeah. mm-hmm. So there were apparently like 13 women who were meeting originally. They had this idea. They like put out some flyers and information about it. And then were really overwhelmed by the hundreds of women who showed up to to participate with them in this demonstration. So they showed up in Atlantic city outside boardwalk hall to protest the pageant that was happening inside and it was being broadcast live. And so they have hundreds of of women show up um, on the boardwalk. And then part of what they did too was um, women smuggled in pieces of a banner. And then when they got inside, like clipped the banner together Mm -hmm. and it said women's liberation and like hung it over the balcony. Um, which reminded me of that like weird veiled prophet ball yeah, where they the swung movies, off like, the down from the rafters. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so this comes from Robin Morgan, who I'm going to tell you about in a minute. She was interviewed as one of the people who organized the event. She was like reflecting on it. So she said, clearly the pageant was a symbol of sexism. It was also a symbol of racism. There had never been a black contestant. It tied in with the war because Miss America was sent to Vietnam to entertain the troops. It tied in with commercialism and capitalism because she toured on behalf of the sponsors and it taught young girls that the important thing in life, even though you might pretend you had a talent, was to get a man, be sexy, and be superficial. Um, so they have this uh, demonstration. And it is really interesting to think about all this like pre-internet or even, yeah, like pre-email, pre-Twitter, like Instagram, whatever, that in order to even get the word out, it had to be like old school flyers mm-hmm. and like letting people know that way. And so one of the functions of doing these demonstrations was even just to network with people to get their contact information. And like, she talked about how she had a Rolodex of like all the radical feminists all over the different parts of the country. And like, that's how you kept track of who to connect with. So they had a freedom trash can on the boardwalk where women could throw in symbols of their oppression, like high heeled shoes, dish rags, diapers, cleaning tools, bras, um, And actually, they didn't burn anything, which was a myth started by a reporter at the New York Post who thought it would make a good headline. Mm. But they just, like, dumped it onto a trash can. They also rented a sheep from a nearby farm to represent the contestants obeying and being paraded around. Mm. Um, And they had a cutout doll of a contestant, which Robin Morgan says, I'm not sure I approve of at this point because it was kind of a caricature. I do have some regrets about some of the specific events we staged. For instance, it wasn't fair to compare the contestants to sheep. The best way to organize is not by insulting the people that you're trying to organize. And it wasn't fair to the sheep. My consciousness was not what it should have been at that point about animal rights in parading our you around. But in time, you learn these things. Mm. And then... um, yeah, they had this like, you know, huge beds, bed sheet banner situation. Um, and then it was on TV and the radio. And so it ended up 
getting onto the local news because it was like a disruption to the pageant that, like you said, everyone was watching because there were three shows <laughs> to watch at a time, um, which our children will never understand. No, like, no. It's whatever you want to watch whenever you want to watch it. So after the protest, the next week, the original New York Radical Women meet up again. But instead of 13, 250 women showed up. Mm to join them. And then they split into these smaller groups and then they had their own priorities and strategies, but they kept working in coalition with each other. And, um, and that's where a lot of the consciousness raising groups continued, which then ended up focusing on abortion. So I thought, Oh my gosh, it's so fascinating that this protest of Miss America pageant is what led to these groups that ended up organizing yeah. so much behind abortion. Right? Yeah. Like there's this really, really deep connection. So I've mentioned Robin Morgan, she was one of the organizers. She's currently alive. She hosts a podcast just like everybody mm. and is a journalist. She started off as a child actor. I didn't recognize any of the shows that she was on, but apparently like a really successful child actor Then ended up working um, as an editor at a pub- publishing company and was involved in trying to unionize their workers. So her, her employer tried to fire her or did fire her as well as other people that were trying to unionize. And so in response, she led a seizure and occupation of their offices in the spring of 1970 and was in protest of the union busting, but also the dishonest accounting of royalties to Betty Shabazz, who was uh, Malcolm X's widow. She was arrested for this. Um, I thought, wow, most people, when they get fired, just go home. <laughs> like, that's a lot. And then she became contributing editor to Ms. Magazine and was either like a part or full-time editor there over the next several decades. She was actually editor-in-chief for a while. Um, and she wrote, she's written a ton of stuff, but her 1970 anthology, Sisterhood is Powerful, is cited as uh, one of the most influential books of the 20th century. And in addition to New York Radical Women, she helped co-found WITCH, that uh, acronym mm-hmm. that we read about, yeah. and then co-founded the Women's Media Center with activist Gloria Steinem and Jane Fonda, who's also an activist and actress. Um, so it's like a completely remarkable life mm-hmm. um, and not somebody that I was familiar with. So that's Robin Morgan still living. Okay. Another woman was Lucinda Sisler. Mm -hmm. And she was also part of New York radical women, which became the red seggings and was founder of New Yorkers for abortion law repeal. And she was super, super anti reform. Um, There's a quote from Jennifer Nelson's book where she says, all women are oppressed by the present abortion laws, by old style reforms, and by seductive new fake repeal bills and court decisions. But the possibility of fake repeal, if it becomes reality, is most dangerous. It will divide women from each other. It can buy off most middle class women and make them believe things have really changed, while it leaves poor women to suffer and keeps us all saddled with abortion laws for many years to come. There are many nice people who would like to see abortion made more or less legal, but their reasons are fuzzy and their tactics acquiescent. Because no one else except the women's movement is going to cry out against these restrictions, it's up to feminists to make the strongest and most precise demands upon the lawmakers who ostensibly exist to serve us. We will not accept insults and call them steps in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And this, I thought, was a great example of these radical feminists that clearly understood the the threats to solidarity. And saw them as problems and yet saw themselves still as like the leaders of the movement. At least that's what it seemed yeah. to me yeah. from this chapter. Um, she was a writer, 
um, she actually, I thought this was amazing when she, I, I can't remember where she grew up, but she in high school received the Betty Crocker Homemaker of Tomorrow Award hmm. in 1955. Oh, she did grow up in California. She went to Vassar. Hmm. She got a degree in architecture, a couple of degrees in architecture. And then how she got involved in feminism was that in her field of architecture, there weren't many women and they were treated really poorly. And so she was trying to, she was concerned about women in her professional field and then ended up becoming an abortion rights activist and uh, wrote a lot of her writings predicted the anti-abortion strategies in the 20 teens, mm. which are the targeted regulation of abortion providers trap, um, which is really what we're seeing now is the fruits of their labor in trying to not attack Roe v. Wade directly, but to try to go after the providers and create <coughs> like huge onerous restrictions on them that make it almost impossible for them to operate. Yeah, um, which is one of the reasons why I think like the red stockings wanted abortion to be kind of taken out of the hands of physicians in particular. I mean, I think I remember it said um, radical feminists believed that doctors should give up their monopoly on abortion because so many Mm -hmm. felt it was a stigma to be labeled as an abortionist. Red stockings confronted these negative stereotypes in their speak out and in their writing. They felt strongly that neither women who had abortions nor abortion providers should be stigmatized as criminals. Um, if women performed abortions, radical feminists re- reasoned, they would not be intimidated by these negative attitudes because they would be providing a service that they all needed. So, I mean, that's kind of, that mm-hmm. is kind of a forethinking argument to be made. If you can see now where the restrictions are coming on the medical profession, had that not been restricted to the profession to begin with, it would be less of a problem. Or it's harder to like shutting down a clinic is like less of a deal if that's yeah. just not how yeah. abortions are achieved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she, so she was also part of the Red Stockings, also participated in this protest, the pageant, also was connected to Ms. Magazine. Um, she, there was a campaign they had in 1972 called We Have Had Abortions, which reminded me of the social media campaign just a couple of years ago. I can't remember the hashtag, but it was encouraging women to share their stories. Mm-hmm. Do you remember mm-hmm. what I it was? I don't remember uh, the busy, hashtag. But... I remember Busy Phillips was like a prominent voice, the actress Busy Phillips, for coming out with her abortion story. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like encouraging people to say like so many more women have had abortions than people think. Mm-hmm. And we need to destigmatize it so people understand the complexities of these decisions. So she is also still living. Um, and yeah, I'm sure still working on these issues. Mm-hmm. So I've got two more women there. Well, there's one Ellen Willis who I didn't read too much about, but um, something that was interesting about her is she, in addition to all her activism was also the first popular music critic for the New Yorker mm-hmm. and was one of the first writers to write about music criticism for like a national audience, which I thought was really interesting. So these women, a lot of them were like journalists, writers, people living in New York. Um, the other one was, or two more, Shula Myth, a.k.a. Shuli Firestone, okay. was born in Ottawa, Canada, and was the daughter, it was a big family, and her parents were um, Orthodox Jews. Her mom was a German Jew who fled the Holocaust, and her dad um, took part, when she was a baby, he 
was a soldier who took part in the liberation of the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Um, so very, very deep connections in her family to that genocide. And her family, then as kids, they anglicized their name from Firestein to Firestone and moved to St. Louis. Her father converted to Orthodox Judaism, and apparently they were like very intense Orthodox mm-hmm. Jews in her family. And there's a lot of like chauvinism, sexism within a lot of iterations of that. And so there was like the girls kind of served the brothers in the family. Like she needed to make her brother's bed because she was the girl and her mom sort of passed along. Like this is just the role of Jewish women. And like, this is part of what we need to do. She went to school in Cleveland and St. Louis and Chicago. And then um, she was an artist I think she became a painter eventually. And when she was in Chicago, she started her first women's liberation group called West Side. I think literally because they were on the West Side mm-hmm. of Chicago. And she was just 22. I just couldn't believe this because I think about like what I was thinking about when I was 22. And I actually was interested in a lot of these issues, but I wasn't like, I I don't think I had ever been to a demonstration or I like, I yeah. do you remember the first protest you went to or the first demonstration you went to? Oh, not off the top of my head. I know. No, other than our making of t-shirts in seventh grade. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> our, like anti, anti Hooters t-shirts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. But I, yeah, I think it is just amazing to me, like the courage and savvy and like political investment will like really young women have in the story. Mm-hmm. So she goes to the national conference for new politics in Chicago, which is in 1967. And it was like thousands of people who got together for like lefty politics. And so the, she met this other woman, Joe Freeman, and they were pissed at the agenda because there weren't really any women's issues on the agenda of this like new politics, like new left. And so they put forth a resolution that wanted to address marriage and property laws and um like bodily justice like like reproductive but also like sexual consent you know bodily control Mm -hmm. and they were told the resolution was not important enough for a floor discussion and they ended up getting it added to the agenda but it didn't get discussed and the guy who was in charge of the meeting william pepper um didn't let any of the women who are waiting to speak speak. And so they rushed the podium to protest. Like, again, I'm just so inspired because mm-hmm. my, like the way I was socialized is to be like super play and be like, maybe I'll write a letter. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll just, you know, complain politely later mm-hmm. instead of just like fucking it up in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. like I, Honestly, can see you doing that more than me, and it inspires me a, a great deal. I mean, I will at least do it with some very cutting remarks. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to tell you, like, side note off our rabbit hole, that my daughter did just write a letter. I think I told you about mm-hmm. this, but we, I got my my car got towed mm-hmm. a couple days ago, and I was really mad because I've parked in this place a million times and that there's really terrible signage. And so I was like very frustrated and grumpy and my daughter was like soaking it all up. And so on the way home, she's like, mom, we have to write a letter. And I was like, yeah, like, write a letter. <laughs> so then we get home and she makes me transcribe like on blue construction paper. She's like, take a letter, mom. And I was like, okay. So she signs her name at the top and then gives me the pen. And this is what she says. Don't annoy us anymore. You took our car. 
You have to say sorry for that. There. I saw two trucks, but not my mom's car. Where is my mom's car? Hey, we need signs for us to tell we can't park there. Remember, we need signs. X, 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 X. And then she said, Mom, tell them this. No hearts, because that would mean we love you. Only X's for you, because you took our car. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's Only awesome. X's for Only you. Only X's for you. Only X's for you. Um, so oh, these these awesome. women didn't wait to write a letter. They rushed the stage. And then he says, cool down, little girl. We have more important things to talk about than women's problems. Lord. So. Let me just like give anyone a clue. Everyone listening knows this. Telling a woman to cool down <laughs> or calm down <laughs> or any iteration <laughs> thereof. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no. <laughs> so clearly this like fires them up. And we talked about this a little last time, like in lots of different leftist movements, um, women were marginalized by men in charge and they weren't having it. And so she like starts newsletters and organized different groups and she moves to New York and she helps found the New York radical women, um, alongside a lot of these other women that I'm telling you about. They write a manifesto. Um, they're, they're clearly interested. Their theory of change is like, this consciousness raising idea that mm-hmm. if women talk to each other and reflect and learn more about their own experiences in relation to other people, that that will like galvanize them for change. And the, um, she helps found the red stockings group. Um, I think one of the points and- that Jennifer Nelson makes too, is that the red stockings and these radical feminists were some of the first people to bring in like personal issues to politics. Like now where yes, we say the personal yes. is political they yes. were the ones that like coined that term and that idea that exactly. bringing in your personal experiences into the political realm is very powerful. And that your, your personal experience, you're an expert of your life. Mm-hmm. And so that like even thinking that women who had abortions could testify as experts in courts about abortion laws, like that was something that they really pushed. Um, she was one of the organizers for those speakouts on abortion. She wrote a book called The Dialectic of Sex that made the bestsellers list when she was 25. Wow. Um, and just really was inspired by like a Marxist analysis of economics and, and connected that to childbearing and child rearing. Um, she was very radical, I would say, in the sense that she regarded pregnancy and childbirth as barbaric. I'm taking a lot of the, these facts, by the way, from the highly reputable Wikipedia. Um, but they all are linked and I followed up on the sources. So I think this is all true. <laughs> Asterisk. I think this is all true. Um, <laughs> but the Wikipedia site said that a friend of hers compared labor to shitting a pumpkin. And I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> about right. Um, but this Shuli Firestone was, was really opposed to the nuclear family mm. and was into she wanted there to be like future generations but she wanted there to be that to happen through artificial reproduction and called them bottled babies where like it wouldn't your gender didn't predetermine your role in childbirth or child rearing it was like in vitro fertilization basically or like you know yeah it which i think wasn't around when she was starting these ideas, yeah. but like, that's kind of in the same vein, but um, she really just thought we shouldn't have nuclear families. We should raise children in a collective. And uh, yeah, that, that even nuclear families were just too deeply enmeshed in patriarchy to be useful <laughs> to the liberation project. Then very sadly, she 
ended up withdrawing from politics in the early 1970s. Her brother committed suicide, which it sounds like that was really traumatic for her. And she um, ended up getting diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Oh, can you hear me still? Are you there? Oh, can you hear me now? It paused yep, for I like can. a good yep. minute-ish. I think that's I'll because go back my and edit that point, but yeah. Um, well, she, so she ended up getting diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and had a, a bad case of Capgras syndrome. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but apparently it's believing that people are hiding behind masks of faces, which sounds terrifying. Mm. So she had like really, really serious uh, mental health issues. And then she died in 2012 and her death is like, she might have starved herself, like just really awful death. Mm. Um, so the last one I'm mm. going to leave you with, I think, is the one. Oops, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, I don't know why it's Hello? very, very not. It says my connection well. is unstable. I don't know what's going on with that, but um, this one. Okay, this is probably the most exciting one for you. This is okay. Carol Hannish. Okay. Was born and raised on a small farm in rural Iowa and uh-huh. went to Drake University and graduated with a degree in journalism. For longtime listeners, Mandy and I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. That's where I currently <laughs> live. I had never heard of this woman. I had no idea. She's from our home state and lived in our hometown and um, worked as a wire services reporter in Des Moines and then left to go to Mississippi in 1965 um, after Freedom Summer there mm-hmm. to work in the Delta ministry, like very, very deep civil rights work, and then ended up meeting some people who hired her to work in New York to do like additional kinds of work like that. And that's when she used, she offered up the offices of the Southern Conference Education Fund, like a civil rights group for the New York radical women to meet in their offices. And then, um, helped to she's she's the one who came up with the idea to protest the Miss America pageant and was also she's been credited with coining the phrase the personal is political Mm -hmm. from an essay that she wrote in 1970 but she says that that's actually like not her language exactly and credits other people and um it's like a little bit more complicated but that kind of idea Mm -hmm. comes from that essay that she wrote but she wrote right after the miss america pageant um on her personal website which we will link to on our website com. she has she reflects on this protest and and what they learned from it. And I thought it was super fascinating that even in the moment she was really pushing them to just publicly think about what went well, what didn't. And she writes, no action taken in the struggle for our liberation will be all good or all bad. And she says this, at this point in our struggles, our actions should be aimed primarily at doing two interrelated things. One, awakening the latent consciousness of women about their own oppression and two, building sisterhood. And she goes through this idea that, um, it was anti-woman in a way to target the contestants or to, mm-hmm. you know, denigrate them in some way mm-hmm. and then, and not to frame them as sisters who suffer alongside them. And they had made a decision to reject those anti-woman signs, but a, some of the women within the protest did it anyway. And so she's also writing about like the work of social movements, which was also super fascinating to me. And 
how we need to make decisions and like, and how to enforce the group decisions that they have made so that people aren't going off and like undermining the effort. Um, one, they had a rule of not talking to male reporters and only talking to female reporters, but people didn't necessarily follow that rule. Um, they also wanted to, she was talking about how like as straight couples would walk by, they would try to talk to the woman of the couple, but they said that put the wife or girlfriend or whatever in a really bad spot. And so maybe that wasn't like the best way to do that. Um, And then she even said, you know, honestly, this might actually be a good time to talk to men in a situation where they can't talk back. She says men must begin to learn to listen. Mm. Our power of solidarity, not our individual intellectual exchanges will change men. If we are going to reach masses of women, we must give up all the in-talk of the new left hippie movements, at least when we're talking in public. Yes, even the word fuck. We can use simple language, real language, that everyone from Queens to Iowa will understand and not misunderstand. Most swear words are anti-woman, and that's probably one reason why our mothers objected to them so much. And I thought, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> but she had, sounds like she's also still living, from what I could tell from my internet research, um, but that she's done a ton of work um, organizing farm workers, um, working against racism and imperialism specifically in South Africa, local environmental struggles, including saving a mountaintop from development by the Marriott Corporation mm-hmm. and converting um, land into state park and is currently an editor and graphic artist. So hmm. there's Carol Hanish. Interesting. Yeah. I remember there reading her name in the book and it mentioning that she was from Iowa and I was like, yep, always that connection. Always <laughs> that worse, Iowa right? connection. It comes back to Iowa. Well, mm, I, yeah. speaking of my daughter and her passionate letters to the tow company, I need to go pick her up from yeah. school, but I'm well, happy we got to talk today. This yes. was great. And next week we'll get into kind of like black women's feminism yeah. and their take on things yeah, in the I next chapter. Wait. So yeah. Yay. Thank you. All right. Okay. We'll talk to you more later. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye.